0: Okay, uh, good evening. Welcome to uh, another fabulous Wednesday night. We have some really good texts tonight, um, some very challenging text and some interesting texts to walk through. Um, so pretty excited about that. And also we are cruising towards the end of Luke's Gospel, so it's pretty fascinating. After tonight, we arrive in Jerusalem. Um, which feels like we just we just kind of got started on our way to Jerusalem. So uh, let's pray and then uh, we'll jump into the text. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you tonight and we seek your wisdom and your guidance and your discernment. Um, we seek the movement of your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our midst as we open your word and seek to be formed by your word and seek to... See clearly who you are and what you are doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us and to have not only eyes to see but ears to hear and uh, spirits that desire to respond to the call that you have placed on our life as disciples of yours. So be with us tonight, be with our conversations. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you be with all those folks that are ill tonight in one way or another and just pray uh, as we hear of your healing capacity, for your healing touch on those folks. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we are, uh, the 11th verse of chapter 17. Um, 11th verse of chapter 17, we're going to go through uh, 1927, right at the beginning of uh, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, then Jesus answered, "Were not 10 cleansed? Where are the 9? Was no one to was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner?" And he said to him, "Rise and go your way; your faith has made you well." Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, "The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor Will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you? And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look, there, or look, here. Do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man was revealed." On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with their goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I will tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken away and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken away and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, He also told this parable to some who were trusted who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, sa- standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself uh, will, he, will be humbled, but the one who humbles themselves will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for, such, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell so all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it? it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, "'What is impossible with man is possible with God.' And Peter said, "'See, we have left our homes and followed you.' And he said to them, "'Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life.' And taking the twelve, he said to them, "'See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished.' For we will be delivered, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through and behold there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich and he was seeking to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he is also a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities." And the second came saying, "'Lord, your mina has made five minas.' And he said to him, "'And you are to be over five cities.' Then another came saying, "'Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow.' He said to him, "'I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant.' You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not. So why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, "'Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas.' And they said to him, "'Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away.' But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And then next is the triumphal entry. So we've been walking through this process of Jesus uh, moving towards Jerusalem because we know that he needs to get to Jerusalem so that uh, he can be crucified there. He knows that. He's been telling everyone that. He has his face set towards Jerusalem. And so if you notice, as we go throughout this section, there's a a cadence that's happening and the story is starting to pick up pace. And also the uh, locations are ticking off uh, regularly where we've had certain sections where there have been no reference to a location. Here we get uh, these various locations. And he starts with, uh, they're going along and these 10 lepers come up to him and they are seeking to be healed. Now, it's interesting because he sends them away to show themselves to the priests, and he doesn't actually heal them. When are they actually healed? When they go. He says, Go to the priests, and so it's not till they become obedient to the process of going that they, in fact, are healed. So there is this interesting interplay between listening to what Jesus is commanding and following through and the result of the thing that one is looking for, in this case, that these individuals would be healed. But what ultimately has made them well in verse 19? Their faith, yes. And what did the disciples pray for last week? Increase our faith. And so we see in this section this huge importance around faith and what faith is trying to do. And right after this, there becomes this very fascinating section uh, from the Pharisees asking Jesus about the kingdom of God. And he says, It's not coming in ways that can be observed, verse 20, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is already here. That is the implication, it's already here in the midst. And notice how the Pharisees, they want to know the answers, yet they are unwilling to see truly what is happening. And then he turns and he addresses this next section to his disciples. And this next section provides, well, frankly, just a lot of confusion. (laughs) And there are certain sections where, where we just scratch our head and we think, what actually is happening here? And in particular, there becomes a fascinating thing around apocalyptic literature and time's discussion, what's actually happening, what's going to happen. When the Son of Man comes, what's it going to be like? When's it going to happen? What's going to be involved? And there can become this, um, shall I say, obsession with trying to figure out when is this going to happen? Or what does it look like? And Jesus has already said, you're not even going to know what it's going to look like because what we think it's going to look like is not what it's going to look like. And yet, then he makes this interesting statement that what it looks like is when the lightning lights up the whole sky and it immediately makes us think about a thunderstorm in the summertime and the lightning cracks across the whole sky and the thunder rolls and the lightning strikes. Thank you. Yep. Some of you were thinking it, others you were like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But when the lightning flashes and you can see everything so clearly... So it's like, okay, so what is it? Is it going to be confusing and no one's going to know, or is it going to be crystal clear like a lightning uh, lighting up the whole sky? Well, it's interesting because he tells two different stories, and he brings in throughout this section in particular all of these Old Testament references. And he's talking about what was happening back then, and he makes reference to this idea of what's happening during the days of Noah and what's happening during the days of Lot. And how what happened was everyone around didn't pick up on the clues and they weren't preparing themselves for what was coming. Sodom and Gomorrah was not preparing themselves for what was coming. Likewise, the people around Noah were not preparing themselves for what was coming. The people are not preparing themselves for what is coming when the Son of Man ends up actually coming in his presence. Also, it's interesting because if you look at both of the instances of the rich individuals who died in last week and then a few weeks ago, both of those individuals were not ready for what was coming. They were anticipating something else. So we see this theme continuing to go through of, are we ready, is the listener and are the people ready for what's about to happen? And Jesus, in essence, is asking his disciples, are you ready for what is about to happen with the Son of Man? And we can't miss this, right? So what happens happens with the ten lepers? Jesus says, what? So he sends the ten away, they're healed, but before they get to the priest, what happens? One comes back. Nine don't come back, they're applauded, they're, or he, he applauds the one for his faith, and then he turns around and he tells a story about when turning around is actually not a good thing. I mean, the irony that happens in some of the interplay here, right, Lot's wife, they're walking away and it's like, don't turn around, and she's like, I just want to get a quick glimpse, and then poof, pillar of salt, right? Right? And it begs the question, did she not believe the instruction of God that she was to not turn around? In essence, did she not have faith that if she turned around, something would happen? It seems to be the case that she lacked faith in the instruction, and she thought, I could turn around. It also brings up, if you remember back to the section where Jesus says, no one puts their hand to the plow and looks back. This idea of once we set our face towards following Jesus, there's no looking back, there's no turning around. And so there's these interesting little drips of story that happen. And and then we get this just, again, this such a confusing phrase around uh, this person um, who's on the rooftop and people in their beds the point is, whoever seeks to preserve their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, for my sake, will keep it. But we take such a tiny little section, and we make whole franchises out of it. You know, it's like the, the old picture, like anybody seen Thief in the Night, right? Terrified people for like their whole lives around what's going to happen in the end, or like you're hanging out with your friend in this, you know, this really cheesy Christian movie, and then poof, your friend's clothes are immediately folded perfectly, even though you knew your friend never folded their clothes. They were always just in a bundle, and their shoes are like right on top. Like when Jesus comes, you're just like poof, clothes gone, clothes there, person gone. Here's where it comes from, and we just take like this teeny tiny little text, and we just run with it. We don't know. (laughs) And we aren't supposed to know. The point is, are we prepared? Are we prepared for what is coming? And Jesus is trying to get his disciples, because again, they're going to Jerusalem for what? For him to be crucified. Are the disciples prepared for what is coming ahead? And then he gives us this, this, this parable uh, about the persistent widow seems to be um, seems to be just completely out of place, except for the fact that what do we hear with the uh, blind individual? How does the blind individual get to the front? His persistence. And so when we look at the the parable of the persistent widow, we think, how does this fit? Except it fits perfectly because this person is this representation of, do we have faith that God is who he is and is going to do what he says he's going to do? And so this persistent widow keeps going back, going back, going back, trying to get justice for herself. And in this case, Jesus says, and if you think that is interesting, how much more will God take care of his people? And then he tells another parable. He's like parable after parable after parable, and this parable happens to be one of my uh, favorites from Luke's gospel. And he has this interesting contrast of the tax collector of the uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And again, what we see throughout Luke's gospel is the comparing and contrasting of different characters, and Jesus does it for us. So the Pharisee, as we've talked about seemingly at nauseum. They're a particular type of individual. Not all Pharisees are bad, but most of them seem to have a challenge, and they get used as kind of the proverbial punching bag. And so Jesus says, look at this Pharisee. He goes to the temple, and what does he do? He brags about himself. I mean, I'm just this great follower of Jesus. I mean, look at me. Uh, you know, I give all this money away. You know, I practice fasting, and and in fact, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like that person over there. Which, hopefully, we don't have any of those videos. Have you recorded your Thanksgiving video yet? If you haven't, or if you have and you did that, maybe Christy could edit that out. And then, who is there? Who is the foil? The tax collector, we keep going back to this person who is seen as this character, this tax collector, is this category of character, and all he says is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I know this is, for some of us, this becomes a challenging thing because uh, we have grown up in traditions where um, we got this thing in the bag. Like when we talked, January, our first book for reading group uh, was deeper, and there was a, a, a whole chapter on despair and how uh, we should think about the reality of our sin in a much greater detail. No one was really into that chapter at all. Like, really? Like, I get it. And yet we see this, this example of, Jesus lifting up this person about when we come to, the, to God, when we come into God's presence, how do we carry ourselves? How is it that we carry ourselves? In this case, this person doesn't even want to enter towards the front. He stays at the back, and he doesn't even lift up his head. He recognizes the need, the need that he has for a Savior, and he says, God, be merciful To me, a sinner. And Jesus says, This is the posture that we should bring when we come to God. It's not that we have to think that we are terrible, horrible, no good, very bad people. It's that we have to acknowledge that we are particular individuals who, who need Jesus. And I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but Do we see Jesus as this, like, super approachable buddy? Or do we see Jesus in his true sense of this person who is the second person of the Trinity, who is fully God and fully man, worthy of worship, and who we should have reverence for when we approach him? Because we've seen it over and over and over and over and over again. You know, we talk about, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about the banquet and the people that sat in the prominent seat. Now we see it, and then they were asked, excuse me, sir, you're in the wrong seat. You need to move to a different seat. Now, in this case, Jesus is saying it again. Think appropriately about who you are in light of who God is. And he says, whoever Exalts themselves will be humbled, and the one who humbles themselves will be exalted, which is this idea of the opposite, the great reversal. In the kingdom of God, things are the opposite. The person who is first is going to be last, the person who's last is going to be first. The person who thinks that they're so important is actually going to be at the bottom, and the person who acknowledges who they are is going to be elevated to the top based on the posture that they hold. And then he doubles down on that because the disciples give him the perfect opportunity, right? There's all these little kids, and the kids are being brought to Jesus, and the disciples, this is the classic story, the disciples rebuke them, and they say, how dare you? These kids mean nothing. They should not even be by Jesus. And Jesus is like, okay, just to be clear, these children are exactly what I'm talking about. And I know, it's like how, you know, you, li- you notice when you listen to like a song and then you just constantly hear it like over and over and over. Some of us are like, am I just hearing the same song over? Probably. God cares about children to the nth degree. Here in this case, Jesus says the little children are of utmost value because part of what the children do is show us how to receive the kingdom of God. And I know we've been harping on this and harping on this and harping on this. The children that exist at Timberwood Church are a gift from God for all of us. Because they have the ability to show us how we are to receive the message of Jesus Christ. But so often it's the case, keep the kids over there, keep the kids quiet. You deal with the kids. I'm done dealing with kids. The kids are just, we just babysit the kids so the adults can do the real thing. And then when the kids are old enough, maybe they can deal with the youth group. But the youth, oh my goodness, have you ever been around middle school kids? Do you smell what it smells like in the grade hall? No, 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 this is where it really is at. Siri, of course you don't understand. Of course you don't understand. And Jesus is like, those at the bottom are actually at the top. And if we don't care about the kids, then we don't care about the kingdom of God. And caring about the kids doesn't just exist in this building. It exists everywhere that we are about. Because then we see in the exact opposite example, right? The children are at the bottom, except Jesus says they're at the top. And then we see this rich ruler who seems like he is at the top. And Jesus says, except he doesn't get it. Because what is it That this rich ruler is seeking. Eternal life, yes. He says, how do I get this eternal life? And in classic Jesus fashion, he answers a question with a question. Gal, it's so much fun. If you want to be more like Jesus, answer more questions with questions. People love it. I tell you they love it. Somebody asked me the question the other day, and they said, I bet you're not even going to answer. And I said, bing! And then, of course, he goes through the commandments. Remember last week, there was this idea about the importance of the law. If you think Jesus doesn't care about the law, you haven't really read much of Jesus. He said last week that That nothing from the law is going to pass away. And then here we get an example of the law seeing this this connection. And he's like, these are very important things to do. And he's like, check, 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 done. And he says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And again, if we don't think Jesus talks about money, we haven't really read much of the red letters that exist in this Bible. And if you remember last, on Sunday, Paul writes to Titus and he says, do good works, including giving money to those who are in need. He says to this rich man, sell everything you have and invest it In a fund that you can use to, you know, support other things, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. (laughs) And I know we're like, yeah, does he really mean that? I mean, like for real, like, but this is just that guy. This is just that guy. Like, that's just him. And Jesus says, because he goes away sad, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Why is it the case that the person who has everything has a hard time grasping the reality of the kingdom of God? Because the next story <laughs> is a blind man who sits by the road and cries, right? There's, some, there's like back-to-back really great songs here, right? Blind man, Zacchaeus, right? Super good. Funny there's no rich ruler songs, like sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I haven't seen that like on a refrain on a Sunday morning. But remember back, way back in Luke 6, who are the advantaged people in the kingdom of God? Blessed are the poor, yes. Because in the kingdom of God, everything is upside down. And so we have this upside down kingdom where the guy who has everything seems to be the man in perfect position. And Jesus says, no, you're actually in the worst position because the things that you have in this life are impeding your ability to grasp the kingdom of God in this life and in the life to come. And we've seen these people over and over and over. And if we haven't been paying attention, the last person you want to be in Luke's gospel is somebody who has money. Like, if we're selecting, we're having a draft, okay, like, just for funsies, like, December 20th, we're going to all get together because we're not going to do, like, a normal night. We'll have a draft of characters from Luke, and we'll just randomly select, first pick. Don't pick a rich person because a few weeks ago, guy has a bunch of stuff, storehouses galore. What happens? He dies that night, dead. Last week, dude has a bunch of stuff. He's got a guy sitting outside his gate that he doesn't uh, appreciate. What happens? Goes he goes to hell! Oh my word! Now we have this guy, rich guy. Goes away sad. And notice Jesus says, it's not that it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is very hard because the grip of the things of this world. And, and we haven't even covered all of the other references to how money works and how our things work. And spoiler alert, what's the one thing about Zacchaeus that we're like, how does that fit? And it's not because he's a tax collector. Well, he's short too, but we're not, we're not like... Sh- This isn't a, there's like ageism, and then there's like altitudism, like lengthism. What would that be? He's rich. You're like, hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Zacchaeus gives, given salvation. You're like, what is it? Is it this Zacchaeus? Is it this? What is it? And Jesus, Peter's like, uh, excuse me, what about us? We got nothing. And he says, There is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And so there becomes this very fascinating look at what, what are the possessions, what is the money doing And the renunciation, or as we started with, remember, John, he's calling a baptism of repentance, this turning from, we've been talking about turning from the world, turning towards Jesus, turning from our stuff, turning towards Jesus, turning from this world, turning towards the kingdom of God. This guy can't turn from this world, and so he's sad, and it's difficult for him. And then Jesus says, when you turn from the things of this world and follow after me, you get everything and then some now and in the future. Because what is happening is not just in the future. Notice he doesn't say, and in the age to come, you'll have this beautiful spread in heaven. He says, you will be blessed many times more in this life and in the life to come. Now that does, you know, again, we just love to just snip out little sections of verses and then we just like and and so we just give all our money away and then God's going to give you 3 times more money because it says right here just steal these verses out of context and and we start whole big groups but he goes on and just after dropping this reality he's like oh remember we're going to Jerusalem and what's going to happen I'm about to be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit on, flogged, killed, and on the third day I'll rise. And the disciples are like, no, nah, not really, don't really get that. Now, I understand it says, this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And it, it, it begs the question, what exactly does Luke mean by that phrase? Does he mean that it was intentionally ambiguous and opaque so they couldn't clearly see what Jesus was saying? But notice your heading tells you this isn't the first time this has happened. This isn't the first reference to Jesus being crucified. But it seems to be the case that the disciples are given a clear view and yet they don't see who Jesus is. And why do we say that? Because right after that, we have a guy who literally can't see and yet sees so clearly. And so Luke gives us these two contrasting stories right next to each other so they can share space, share space in the narrative and so we don't forget like, who's I was at home and I was like, Nikki was watching the show and I was like, well, who's this again? I've not even watched the show. She was just like, oh my goodness, you don't even know because you haven't been watching. Right? Or you just step in, you're like, Okay, who's this again? You're like, we're on episode eight. (laughs) And if you would have been watching, you would know who this is. Luke just jumps, puts them right together so we can follow along. The disciples can't see who Jesus is and the importance of his death and resurrection. And yet this blind beggar who's sitting by the road near Jericho as they're progressing He hears that Jesus is there, and who does he refer to Jesus as? Son of David. And so again, we see this interesting connection to the Old Testament. Because Son of David means that he is in the lineage of David, which means he is in the lineage of the king. And so Jesus' kingship is directly connected to David. And so this blind guy has such great clarity of vision about who Jesus is. And the disciples who are right there don't have the clarity of vision of who Jesus is. Don't miss that. And notice he doesn't just ask once. He persists. And they try to rebuke him. And this is honestly one of my favorite quotes from Jesus. And we did this whole thing on it last year, and so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it this year. Jesus looks at him, and what does he say? What would you like from me? And if you're the blind guy, wouldn't you be like, are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? Seriously? What do you think I want from you? I want to be able to see. Jesus wants to provide the needs of the people who desire to be in relationship with him. And not just in the future, but in the present. And I know we've been going after this again and again and again, and it doesn't make it any easier. I just, the Holy Spirit is just then like layering this on me. Do we believe that Jesus has the ability to heal today as he did back then? Do we really believe that? And if we really believe that, would it affect us? Would it affect how we pray? Not would it affect us going to the doctor and the, you're like, okay, now you're getting weird. Not that. But would we really, would it affect how we pray? And what is the result? How does he get healed? His faith, Yes. And again, I know that because then this this devolves into if someone's not healed, they don't have enough faith. And that is not true. That is 100% not true. It is the case, though, that faith has a connection. Because remember, the disciples are like, increase our faith. And then Luke gives us all these instances of the importance of faith and what faith is doing. And then we see Zacchaeus he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? You were all thinking it. You were all thinking it. He climbs What what did Zacchaeus want, verse 3? He wanted to see who Jesus was. And so he puts forth the effort. He gets up into the tree and what happens? Jesus calls him, and he says, we're having dinner at your house. Imagine what Zacchaeus' wife would have thought when when he brings Jesus home. Oh, my goodness. Hey, babe, we have a guest, and it's Jesus. Boom. Thank you. She's like, great. I don't have to cook. He'll take care of it. Jesus. Fish and loaves. This is what I got. It's like kitchen rescue. Zacchaeus. Two strikes, chief tax collector, rich guy, and what happens? Salvation has come to his house. Why? Because he sees Jesus for who he is. And what else does Zacchaeus do? He gives half of his stuff to the poor. Half. We're not talking 10%. He says, I give half to the poor. You want to talk about radical decision making. And he says, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham, which again is this allusion to the Old Testament and the Abrahamic covenant. And We're going to talk a lot about Abraham when we go into Acts. And we're also going to talk about this idea of household faith when we come to Acts. Yes. Correct. Jesus doesn't ask him to give all. To the rich man. Because the rich man has a problem with his possessions. Zacchaeus doesn't have a problem with his possessions. It's an individual basis. That's why the question becomes, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Is what the rich man is called to, is it normative for all or is it normative for one? And likewise, when we talk in a little bit, is what Jesus calls me to the same thing what he calls you to? Well, in one instance, someone's called to give all, and then right after that, someone's called to give 50%. And so what's the next instance? We don't know. At other times, yeah, it's leave everything behind. The question becomes, what is standing in the way between that person and Jesus? And Jesus sees the rich man and he says, that guy has a problem. His problem is his money. Leave your money and follow me. He won't do it. At other times, it's, you know, hey, I got to go bury my dead, my dead family member. Too bad. Leave it behind. The idea here is you have to have total and complete commitment to Jesus Christ no matter what the world tells us to do. And that is what constantly happens. Yeah, it's baffling. It's like, what in the world? Why does Zacchaeus get to keep 50% of his stuff? I don't know. Zacchaeus has an immense amount of faith and, is, and Jesus says, I like what you're doing. You desire to be in relationship with me? Keep it up. Salvation has come. Does Zacchaeus pray the prayer of faith? Does he walk down the Romans road? Does he take the four steps? Does he know the four spiritual laws? Does he do any of that? Does Zacchaeus repent of his sins and say, Jesus, I need you to be my savior? No, he doesn't. Jesus says, hey, we're going to your house. You want to see me? You love me? Boom, salvation. We're like, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, he makes up for what he does wrong. He gives back. So he seems to be like, not just a crooked tax collector, but like an upright. It's like an oxymoron. Like an (laughs) honest IRS. I don't know. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so how much... Where's Russ at? So we have a math Russ, where's Russ? We have a math problem, right? Zacchaeus has X. He gives X, uh, half X plus four times Y. How much does Zacchaeus have at the end of the day? Well, but he he didn't realize it, and so he's trying to make an amends. What did we say last week? What does Jesus say last week? If your brother or sister sins against you, Seven times in one day, forgive them seven times. Zacchaeus says, when I make a a screw up, I fix it. And I don't just fix it, I fix it fourfold. Yes, 100%. Zacchaeus gets it, it and and the rich man doesn't get it. Yes, the hundred, yes. Jesus sees the rich man for what he is and he knows why the rich man has to give everything away. And the question becomes, which we, it's not a question tonight because it is so personal and we don't even want to have the conversation with the person we look at in the mirror. What is the thing that has its grips in us that is impeding our ability to fully follow Jesus Christ and whatever that is, I need to get rid of it. No one wants to have that conversation. Not with ourselves or with anyone else. And that is the problem with the rich young ruler. That is the problem with the rich young ruler. Oh man, we got two minutes. We got two minutes to talk about the most important part of this whole passage. So we have this peculiar story. And Jesus tells this story about this noble man who leaves and goes off to this far country. And he gives a certain amount of things to three people. And he says, I'm going to be back. I'm going to entrust these things to you. Do with it what you can. And when I get back, we'll have an accounting. What's about to happen? Jesus already said what's about to happen. He's going to die. And he's going to go away. What's going to happen in Acts? All the rest. And so Jesus looks at these people. And one person has been given, they've all been given the same thing, right? And one person says, God has blessed me with X. I'm going to get 10X. I'm going to do everything I can to get 10X in the things that God has given me. And one person says, that's a big task. I'm going to do everything I can and I come up with 5X because I want to multiply what God has given me. And one person is like, I'm going to dig a hole because I'm not sure I want to do anything. I don't want to screw up. I don't want to take any risks. I don't want to do anything. And the person who has one makes ten, commended. The person who has one makes five, commended. The person who has one and is terrified to make a mistake gets nothing. Thank you, Willy Wonka. Right? You lose. You get nothing. And the question becomes, what are we doing with the things God has given us? We've seen it over and over and over and over. We just had a story about Zacchaeus and what he does with his stuff. And then Jesus follows it up with a story and says, I'm going to go away to a far off country where I will be king. And when I come back, there will be an accounting for what have you done with the things that I've given you. And there is this super challenging thing because for some of us, we become crippled in fear about making a mistake and screwing up and so we take what God has given us and we hoard it away and we bury it in the backyard because we don't want to screw it up. And then there's uh, these other two individuals who are like, I'm just going to do the best I can with what God has given me. And if I screw up, I screw up. But God is gracious and merciful and loving and I have to at least try. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Wonderful job. You have tried and you have had success and you will have more success. And I know for some of us, Our threshold for risk, it's like the old, this ketchup is really spicy. You know, it's like this stair is really high to like jump off of. And this story about these minas is when Jesus leaves and goes off to the far country and he comes back, will we be prepared? And what will we have to show for the things that God has entrusted to us. Will we have taken what he's entrusted to us and multiplied the kingdom of God? Or will we have been so afraid to make a mistake that we don't do anything? And that becomes this burning question. Are we afraid? Or are we free to be fearless because God has blessed us. And Jesus just said, for those who have given up everything, the abundance is overflowing. This concept of the superabundance of God is seeded throughout Luke. And the question becomes, which of these people do we want to get behind and say, that's who I want to be? Is it the one who's taken the risks and gotten the 10? Is it the one who's, Done the best they could and gotten five, or is it the person who's like, I'm not going to take any risks, I'm just going to do this thing, stash my stuff over here, and hope for the best in the end? It's tough. All right. You can go to your group. Sorry I went three minutes over. It was fun though.